I'm AJ Bianco from Podcast PD, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows in the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My EdTech Life. Thank you so much for joining us on this wonderful Saturday morning or evening or afternoon or well into Sunday, depending where you are in the world. But as always, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you joining us and making us part of your day. Thank you so much, as always, for your support, for all your likes, shares, and follows. Thank you so much for listening to our amazing episodes and, of course, getting to learn from amazing educators, creators from all around the world where you can go ahead and take a little bit of something and sprinkle it on to what you are already doing great. And I am really excited about this morning because we are going to talk research. And I know you may be thinking, it's like, wait a minute, that's a little bit misspelled. Well, (laughs) you'll hear why. It's called Let's Talk Research because I'm really excited to be joined by an amazing guest who I have been following for a while now in the TikTok space. And the ability that he has to garner interest in the topics because He deals with research and education. And for many of us that are in education, we definitely need to hear or have a place where we can amplify our voices and share our thoughts and ideas. And Eric has just has done that on TikTok and taken it to a whole other level. So without further ado, Eric, how are you this morning? Excellent. Fantastic. Um, you know, the, the kids have been a little, little wild this morning because they're like, oh, we have to be quiet since it's like, ah, I run around at the same time. Uh, and right now they're on the other end of the house. And, um, <laughs> you know, we're having no, a but time. That's wonderful. It's, and it's okay. And don't worry. We, I have had appearances where we've had <laughs> the kids hop on. We've had the dogs yep. hop on and everything. But like I always tell all our viewers and, um, you know, whoever will be listening, I say, hey, you know what? Tech happens. This is real life. Yep. It's a genuine, authentic conversation. And I'm really excited to dive in deep. So, Eric, for all our audience members that are watching us live or are going to catch this on the replay, give us a little brief introduction and your context within the education space, please. Yeah. So um, I'm currently working towards my Ph.D. in curriculum studies at DePaul University. Um, I actually am. I'm for those who who are familiar with the PhD uh, sort of process, I'm, I'm like three courses away from being what we call ABD all but dissertation. Um, and so then it's going to be all dissertation all day for the next year. Um, hopefully keeping, keeping that in mind, I'd, I'd like to think in about a year and a half, I may be defending. Um, that's, that's the goal anyway. Um, and so, while I have been doing my coursework, I am one of those people I don't I don't resonate with just information that's given to me. I have to make use of it. I have to put it into practice. And so when I was engaged with a, a education in the community and community building uh, course at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, look, what are we doing as higher ed and as researchers to support uh educators out in the field who are suddenly having to completely improvise everything that they're doing. 
And uh, I looked around and a lot of people are like, yeah, that's cool. But our, everything's on fire over here. And uh, what, what, what's your idea? And a friend of mine was like, hey, have you been on TikTok? And I was like, no. Uh, and so I got on for a minute and I said, like, oh, people, some people are talking about some real stuff here. And I was like, oh, and I see that there's actually a lot of students on here. I see that there's a lot of teachers on here. And so in the spring, early spring of 2021, we created Let's Talk Ed Research. And that was started purely as this community outreach project, as a, hey, let's make education research and researchers accessible uh, to, to sort of the general public and join in sort of the public discourse around what's going on in this absolutely insane time of education. Absolutely. Um, but before that, uh, before the PhD life and stuff, I was substitute teaching. I've been substitute teaching um, for about 20 years now in some capacity, but I've also taught uh, summer programs. I teach with the Center for Talent Development at Northwestern, uh, which is a gifted enrichment program. And uh, my origin background is kind of in theater, uh, which I then brought into the education space and has kind of very, it, it over time showed me that like, oh, wait, there's something here that I'm getting that a lot of uh, educators have not. So let me help bring that out into the space. Oh, that's great. And, uh, you know, again, I, I'm a late bloomer or just late getting onto TikTok as well. But once I, you know, same thing started seeing, you know, educators and creators and, you know, in the education space, just talking about all these real issues. And, you know, it's really helped me, you know, again, better equip myself, better see what's out there, see what at least minimal incremental changes we can make, at least within myself and my practice to bring mm -hmm. it to and share with, uh, you know, obviously within our district and through the podcast and this platform to be able to pr bring it out to many others that may not yeah. have access to information, which We'll talk a little bit about what we, uh, you know, talked earlier about access to information as we get more into your background. But again, as always, one of my favorite parts for all our guests and audience members, you know, is that superhero origin story. And like I tell everybody, all my guests that are here are people that I have seen do some amazing work within the education space and are kind of like likened to a superhero. I Every superhero has an origin story. And I know you talked to us just a briefly a little bit there, but my question to you is, as you lead up a little bit more into your origin story, was, is or was education your main, you know, line as far as, yes, this is what I want to do and I want to dedicate my life to, or did that come later in life? Uh, consciously, no. Subconsciously, <laughs> always. Um... No and yes. It's it's actually both of those because I grew up and was in theater. I quite literally grew up backstage. Um, my mom was choreographer. My dad was an artistic director. Um, I was in shows as a kid. Um, and I, I was definitely incredibly passionate about it. But something that it, I picked up very early on, in particular for my parents, who would also teach on the side. Um, because I don't know if you know this, but the theater life is not exactly um, uh, financially liquid. You know, it's 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 not it's not an area you go into for the bucks for the money, uh, much like education. Um, but so my parents would teach on the side and what have you. And something I really internalized very early on about theater and performance and everything is that all art is a form of communication. And 
to me, if that communication doesn't have something new to share, something to teach, something to uh, explore with one's audience and fellow performers, then I don't really have much use for it. And that doesn't mean that that doesn't exist. Like I, so much of our entertainment is kind of this stuff that doesn't have any real depth or meaning. And believe me, I, just as much as another person, love something that's just fluffy, that just, you know, is there to like make me laugh for a second and move on and doesn't really change me in any way. But that's not the kind of art I ever wanted to create. Um, so even when I was full-time, like I'm a theater artist, this is what I'm doing. I always wanted to do theater that was educational. You know, I wanted to do something that was going to teach the audience and teach myself and the people I'm working with something that it knew and with greater nuance than I had before. So when I got out of, of college, like fresh out of college, like within, um, you know, I, Stayed with my parents for the summer. Uh, actually, no, I didn't. Sorry, uh, I got out of college. I went to um, I went to a. I worked at a teaching. I taught as an education intern for Lexington Children's Theater in Lexington, Kentucky. Shout out to them, and met uh, a really cute girl there who, twenty two years later, is my wife, and we have two beautiful kids. So that worked out really well, um, and. Then I went and stayed with my parents for a little while while I was figuring out what was going to happen next. And there was a high school that was literally down the street from them. And I was like, look, I can go substitute teach um, there because you just needed to have a college degree in order to get a teaching, a sub, subbing license. So I, I'm teaching down at the, the, the high school and I took over for like two weeks for, for one of the teachers who went on, a, on kind of a class trip thing. So I, I had kind of a smaller group of kids that were kind of, you know, weren't involved with whatever the, the event was. And we were just diving into biology, something I hadn't, you know, really studied real hard that was familiar with. And, um, and I was like, well, let's figure this out together. Right. And we had a great time. And I noticed very quickly that some of the assignments that we had, worksheets and stuff, those weren't resonating. Kids looked at those worksheets and went, no, this is dumb. I don't get it. What do you want? Right. And and then the other part was this assignment where they were going to present parts of the textbook to each other. Right. And I noticed that when they did that, they were really good at saying, oh, the textbook says X, Y and Z. And there you go. And I was like, OK, great. But what does that mean? And they're like, what? I'm like, no. But so you just presented that. But like, can you sort of explain that more? Can, can we? Oh, no, we don't actually know what we just said. Oh, well, let's figure that out. Let's fix it. So, I, you know. This is me just going, oh, how can I make sure that we're learning the things that have been assigned? Uh, to, to bring a relatively long story shorter, uh, I, uh, I, I'm moving on to other classes and stuff. And the biology teacher comes back and, and is, tracks me down in the hallway. And she's like, what did you do? I'm like, what? What did you do? So-and-so got an A on the quiz. Yeah, he's a smart kid. No, you don't understand. This kid hasn't done anything for me all year he's a d student i've been begging him to make an effort and to do stuff and to actually learn this stuff what did you do and i had no idea how to respond to that at the time i didn't have the language right because i this is me at 22 right just out of school having just gotten an undergrad in theater and i'm sitting there going well 
I noticed he wasn't resonating with the worksheets and stuff. So we kind of threw away the worksheets. Is that okay? I, I, I put it in my notes that we kind of did something different. Um, and I listened to him and we talked about like what was going on. And, and I, I, we figured out that, you know, he wasn't resonating with what was going on because he didn't understand kind of background. So we figured that out and we kind of went on from there and, and we just, you know, decided to work together on what was going on and to figure it out. Do you not do that? <laughs> like, and it just, it, it was this moment that then, and I have to say, I, I tell this story relatively often, but the thing is, it's not just this one story. This happened over and over and over again, over the course of 10 years of me subbing in lots of schools, in private schools, in um, charter schools, in public schools, in inner city Baltimore public schools. Uh, in Houston, I, you know, all these different places, I kept running into these instances where I would come in and I'd just be like, hey, let's figure this out together. And, and I had no problem noticing and seeing when the lesson plan, when the, when the intended script wasn't working for us and going, well, screw that. Let's try and figure out where we're trying to go together. And seeing that resonate, particularly with kids, uh, with, uh, neurodiversity and what have you. And that, that then led me towards figuring out, oh, wait, uh, I'm connecting with these kids whose needs are, needs are not being met, who are incredibly bright, um, but also may have some co-occurring issue going on that I, you know, even without necessarily knowing that you just, I would just kind of sink in. And later I discovered that was what we call twice exceptionality. And that then was the thing that led me into be like, okay, I have to do this education thing full time. That is awesome. You know, as you were telling your story and talking about your experience as a substitute, I must say that sometimes I've gotten the question on this show. It's like, who has been the most influential teacher that or person that you can remember? And I've had several, but no one had made a greater impact on me than a substitute teacher that I had when I was in ninth grade. And it was a ninth grade biology course. And very similar way, he came in. He was a former teacher, retired. Um, you know, gentlemen, probably about like either five four, five five, coming in, glasses, little white hair, you know, and just very, very, you know, energetic for his age. And he would come in and sub. And Mr. Margo, who was my my teacher at the time, would leave. And he, of course, leaving those handouts and packets. And mm -hmm. Mr. We knew that when Mr. Rodriguez was coming in, we weren't doing any packets. He's like, nah, 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 put that away. And one day we walked in and on the chalkboard, because I'm dating myself here, we still had chalk. So we had chalkboard and he wrote on the board, C. Hopkins Cafe. And if anybody ever asks, he goes, what is the thing that you remember most about high school? I said, C. Hopkins Cafe. And they're like, well, what is that? Well, Mr. Rodriguez said, okay, guys, today your lesson is just going to be on these elements that you all need to survive. And it's just C. Hopkins Cafe, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, calcium, uh, magnesium, and I forgot the other one with the S, you know, sometimes. But that to me was like, this is it. This, this is my style. This is my jam. And that really is all I remember from ninth grade biology. But it made an impact on me. And again, yeah. because he was able to just reach out to us in a different way rather than the handouts, you know, we, it resonated with us. It, and it was about the way he made us feel. He en mm -hmm. engaged us in conversation. 
And that to me was something that was very important. And so again, that's why it was my most memorable moment from my high school years. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your experience there because we were talking a little bit about pre-chat and talking about it a little bit about pre-chat as far as your theater experience and coming into the classroom. I mean, there is a sense of showmanship when you are a teacher that you have to, I don't want to say like, you know, be up there and like, I mean, entertain, I mean, but you're engaging. You have to Mm -hmm. tell the story. You have to build the plot. You have to do all of that when you're doing your lesson. So let me ask you, how important was it for you when you made that transition into teaching to have had that experience and skill set, you know, as you brought lessons to your students? Uh, 100% every time I will say that I learned more about the process, the, the practical aspects of teaching from my theater training. I've learned more from that than anything else in terms of formal, edu- even as a doctoral student. Like everything that I do, even within the doctoral lens, the, the, you know, when I'm doing all this coursework and I'm going through education history, all of that still pales in comparison or has in some way gone through the lens of what it means to be a collaborative storyteller and the collaborative process of engaging in an understanding of the world, right? And, and, that's, and that's the key thing is that, you know, particularly in live theater, everything is fundamentally collaborative. And what I found that I was bringing to the classroom, and it was really, it was really heartening. Um, and I, I, this is more than one that happened, but there's a particular teacher who I worked with. I, I ended up co-teaching um, because I was subbing for the co-teacher of, of this, you know, varsity level, you know, dude who was like two, I actually, he's written. He retired like three years after I worked with him. Um, you know, this just amazing teacher who like was just a, a, a part of the firmament of the building. You know that teacher. So like everybody in the building knows that dude. And even the students who aren't like fans respect. You know what I mean? And this guy just knew how to like meet the kids where they were and what have you. And so I'm co-teaching with him and I'm, you know, my very excitable self, but I also come in, you know, going, what are we going to do? You know, and understanding that I don't have all the answers from the very beginning and that we, we have to co-create what's going to happen in class that day. And so again, even in his class, there was like, okay, well, we're going to go over this sort of worksheet about Romeo and Juliet, right? And we're going to talk about that. And, and the students are going to work on this. And so I sat down with this group of students who were like, I don't get it. I don't like this. This book is dumb. You know, I don't, I don't understand any of this. And, and I'm looking at the questions like, well, actually these questions you're getting, these are, you know, there's no wrong answer other than the one that you just refuse to get. Right. And, and so I immediately was like, okay, well, let's set that aside. And let's just talk about like what, why it's not resonating. What's, what's the issue? What's the barrier, et cetera. And then I was like, well, you know what? And I sat there and I was like, okay, well, I'm interested to know because this is a story about teenage kids who have the shots for each other. And you seem to not think that that's familiar. And I, I look around at this high school every day and I can tell you, I see this moment all the time of two kids who see each other and want to get into, into each other's pants. Like you guys know this story through and through. And they're like, well, yeah, wait, that I was like, okay, when they're talking about hands, did you think they were talking about hands? 
Yeah, no, they're not talking about hands. Not at all. Well, maybe a little. They're talking about what those hands could do. Oh, oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and so we had this moment and, and it was just it's it's one of my favorite things anytime working with with, you know, uh, it's one of the reasons I actually do think Romeo and Juliet belongs because it's one of those things where it's like it's actually really subversive because Juliet has a lot more agency than she ever would at that time period. Um, anyway, getting back to this. So I'm talking with the teacher afterwards later. and He's like, man. You know, it took me at least three years before I figured out how to how long been doing this and i was like well i've been subbing for like you know uh five years now you know five or six years now um and 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 he's like yeah but like what at what point did you learn to like just take the worksheet throw it away and go what what are we at it was like day one i like that's just how you work like it that it's a lotsy right and he's like there you go that's it and he was just like, I wish more. And he told me, he's like, I wish more teachers came in already knowing that. And that's like, so you want another origin story. That's the origin story where like my dissertation work is. Um, it's around this idea of like, what can we do to help pre-service teachers come in going, I don't have all the answers. We're going to collaborate and if the lesson plan that I have isn't working, I'll readily throw away part of it because the main thing that matters is the kid in front of me, not the expectations of what I wanted to do today. Excellent. You know, everything that you said really sums up my career in the classroom for 11 years. Uh, I didn't go through the traditional education background. I actually came from business into education. Mm. And I always tell people to me, you know, and of course, being in this world now, doing my doctorate, you know, actually, we're probably like we're at the same. Like, you need three more classes. Yeah. I need three more classes before we start yeah. writing, writing like the wind. But, um, you know, what helped me, and I still go back to it. I said for myself, I wish that my education program that I'm going through here, that I did my master's in ed tech and now done my doctorate, they always kind of ask us surveys and say, well, what could we better do to do to help pre-service teachers? And one of my things has always been give them a marketing class, marketing 101, know mm -hmm. your customer. And that was what helped me the most transitioning in, knowing that I have 29 different customers that I have to sell algebra to. And not every customer is going to buy it in the exact same way. And I have to cater to their needs because some may want eight cup holders, some may want five, some may want no cup holders at all. They really don't care, but you have to know your audience. And so going back to that, I like one uh -oh. comment also i would like to welcome here to the chat who put this in here it says improv is also that way you must listen and respond to yeah. your audience so like you're speaking here you know knowing your students see what response you're getting from them engaging them to either give you more and then giving them back what they're asking for and in just a very organic way in that storytelling mode yeah. that we were talking about earlier which is so very important so and they just put the finger, they really just put the finger on it. And I feel a little bad because um, early on, I'd be like, well, we need to teach improv to, to, to pre-service teachers. And the problem with that is that when I say that word, people don't think of it that way. And I was actually going to point out, I love that you mentioned marketing because marketing gets a bad rap. It really does. There is this assumption that understanding and that business and marketing is about getting one over on somebody. And that's not it. that. Yes, it can be that, but that's not what it's really about. 
at the end of the day, a good salesperson is, is genuinely trying to help the customer get the thing that they want and need, right? And sometimes, and oftentimes even, it is about teaching the customer what they need, even if they came in wanting something different, because as you talk to them, you find out what, they're, what, the, what the, the role of the product is going to be. And you go, this is actually the thing you came in to buy. That's actually not the thing that's going to be right for you. And the problem is, is that, you know, thanks to business, it's so often turned into how can I upsell? And that's, that's, that's a problem, you know? And, and I think that actually, I, I think that mirrors well over to, to education. I would say that that mirrors in many ways the, how can I make this teachable to the test? How can I make sure that these kids are going to perform well on this? To me, that's the upsell. Because then it becomes about how can I make them know a thing and repeat it, which is not the same thing as it's mistaking what they need. You know, like we believe that the kids need to perform well on tests. And there is a certain reality to that. Don't get me wrong. But we then become blind to the foundational need of needing, of, of understanding how to interact with new information, how to interact with people who have something to share with you and, to co and how to co-create something meaningful. Because in that is agency. In the, and that's the thing is, I think people seem to see the individual and, and other people as separate. And from my perspective, those things are interlocked. You can't just be an individual. You are going to be a person incited because we don't learn without other people. Like all knowledge, all learning, all development, arguably, if we go from like a Vygotskyan direction to get all, you know, uh, <laughs> PhD on you. Um, I really love kind of the Vygotsky point of view that all development moving forward and becoming and growing is socially moderated. But it, the individual is the one who creates value. And then we get into Ikeda and value creation ideas and stuff. But yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I love that comment and that they put the finger. Absolutely. It is improv. And that's the thing is through my theater training, I was taught to really internalize that sense of, hey, hey. Uh, I really love uh, the, to internalize that sense of coming in of like, we are here to co-create something and it is my job to say yes. It is my job to validate the student who's in front of me instead of trying to force them into the model of my expectations. Oh my gosh, that is so powerful. That is awesome, Eric. I love the way that you put that. And again, it just speaks so much to my experience. I mean, it's interesting how we come from two different worlds, yet we did the same thing. It was called different. I mean, I'm coming from business, you're coming in from theater. And then of course, now I'm understanding what we were doing. And I often joke around with people. I say, look, I was doing personalized learning back in 2005 before it became a huge buzzword. Right. Thanks to marketing, but it, it's the concept is there. Now I know there's a name to it because I, I didn't go through that education or mm -hmm. traditional route. But now, I, like I said, I, I find that value. And it, incidentally, I, I, as you're talking about this, I always tell people, you know, they ask me, it's like, what has helped you or what would you say has been your most successful, uh, I guess, uh, 
skills or traits that you have to be in the classroom. I said, for me, it's always been improvise, adapt, and overcome. Those three words have helped me be successful pretty much in anything as I transition from classroom now to instructional technology and in anything, even in doctoral studies. And all of that is just being able to improvise when you're meeting with somebody, knowing what it is that they need, how you're going to co-create, improvise, overcoming that barrier when you need to get something done. And then, you know, adaptability, being able to adapt, you know, to the to what is happening. And yeah. really, that's really helped me out a lot. So let's transition now into your TikTok platform. So I want to yeah. ask you, like, tell us a little bit more. I know you, you kind of hit a little bit on it. And as the conversation goes, we kind of get an idea. But I want to know a bit more about the mission. What is the mission mm -hmm. of Let's Talk Ed Research? And how has it evolved from when it first oh, started? Yeah. So, I mean, the... To, I'll go ahead and start at the beginning. The beginning was, hey, let's just try to to bring to make higher education accessible, you know, to simply to come down from the ivory tower. And I think the thing is, it's like the majority of people in higher ed do not see themselves or want to be kept to the ivory tower. They desperately want to see themselves as relevant and engaged with what's going on in the world. They really do. But the thing is, is our institutions, our structures, our systems create those barriers between town and gown, right? There are whole papers about, you know, the separation of town and gown and what communities and what universities have done to try to bridge that gap, right? And there's been some success out there. Look at, I mean, you can just do a quick Google Scholar search for town and gown studies and research and stuff. You'll find lots of stuff along those lines. So I, that was kind of the inspiration of like, well, let me come out here and like, and I also because in a, particularly in the public dialogue sphere and discussion, um, there is a tendency for even very well-meaning people to kind of come away with the wrong idea or to state something as if it were fact without any sort of uh research for it without any sort of evidence um, and to have that kind of takeoff. On the same tone, you have people who are saying things that are actually completely accurate, completely true, who don't even know that there is evidence that they could be drawing upon to support. And so very, so a, a, kind of an initial idea there was to kind of come into those conversations and to be able to, when somebody says something completely asinine, to say, I'm sorry, that's, there's really no research to support that. Um, and by the way, here's all this re research that says different, right? You know, I, and for, I mean, one of the biggest ones, and this is one that I'm going to be doing a post on today, uh, is issues around um, uh, trans identity of pronouns and stuff. There is zero, absolutely no evidence that I've ever come across that honoring a person's identity, whatever that may be, does harm. There is ample research that shows that that uplifts and supports and encourages students to do better. And the simple act of just acknowledging the identity of a student who comes into your class and says, these are my pronouns, this is the, this is the name that I go by, works wonders. And in fact, we have research that shows that to deny that causes harm, causes harm to children. And I'm not okay with that. 
you know, so when anytime somebody comes in with, you know, with some sort of statement of like, oh, they're harming children by acknowledging that trans people exist or that there are families other than heteronormative uh, nuclear family structures, that somehow that is harmful to children. We have ample evidence that shows the exact opposite of that. So that's an example of that. And then on the other hand, you have people coming in and going, um, you know, saying something to the effect of like, oh, well, when I teach, I, you know, I think it's just really important um, to make sure that uh, that we're creating and inviting an inclusive atmosphere for all of our students and that it's okay to create accommodations for them. And here's a couple of things that I do because I happen to have a student who struggled with this. What do you think? To which I can then go, hey, look, by the way, did you know there's a research paper that says, you know, here's multiple research papers that say uh, what you're doing is really efficacious and helpful, right? And so to be able to dive into the public dialogue in that way and to kind of provide this sort of evidence-based source uh, approach to responding to the dialogue that's happening was kind of a key thing to start with. Um, and it's still there, still very much there. Um, and then, and then it kind of did. And then from there it evolved because as things do, it, it, it you know, initially it started as me and Caitlin, uh, my co-conspirator, Caitlin Meyer. Um, however, while we were doing this, she got promoted into an admin position that takes all of her attention. And she's doing some incredibly amazing work. She's at a school that is uh, that is taking in, literally taking in refugees right now. Um, so needless to say, she's got enough on her plate. Um going on so we you won't see her on the channel as much but she is very much there and she and i talk every week um we're doing coursework together and stuff um but as i was doing my coursework i was like well why don't i share the things that i'm finding and learning about and talking about the coursework and that also seemed to really resonate with people of like you know where they were like oh so i did qualitative research last year and i i was like well i'll share this process with people and then during that i was like I should just do a qualitative study here on TikTok. So I did. Um, and rather than doing a traditional journal logging, like as you want to research stuff, you know, they're like, you have to have a journal, you have to record, you have to do all these things to make sure that you're recording, especially in qualitative, you want to be recording on your data. I was like, then I'm just going to journal to TikTok. And so as I was doing my interviews, as I was going through my stuff and I was sharing I shared out my, uh, I, I, I walked everybody through like, okay, here's the problem statement. Here's this, you know, here's, uh, here's the methods. Uh, here's the theory. Um, getting back to Vygotsky, I'm like, okay, here's kind of a Vygotskyan lens through which I'm doing this phenomenal. Oh, by the way, here's what a phenomenological study is, you know, and it's talking to people who are in it, in an event, in a thing, in a, in a particular moment in time and going, let's understand this moment in time better. Um, and so, yeah, so I did that study on TikTok. You can go and look. Um, I labeled them all. I hate that TikTok has not yet allowed me to create playlists. Um, and I'm going to try and start moving. I'm starting to move those videos over to YouTube. I can say that here, right? I won't yeah. lose. Uh, I'm moving. So I'm also on, we're also on YouTube now, sort of very small scale. We're going to be ramping that up soon. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of, I don't know. I've, <laughs> I feel like I've rambled a little bit. 
No, but it, 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 it's perfect. No, but it's wonderful because I definitely want my audience members that are, you know, going through programs, education programs, or even right now, because this is going to lead me to the next question. What I love that you're doing is that you are sharing, you know, your methodology for somebody like myself who might be, you know, working on their doctorate as well, or anybody that maybe just, you know, learns a little bit different. And maybe the, the, I might say some of the professors might be a little dry, but seeing somebody that is in it and you explaining it, I was like, oh, that resonates with me. Oh, so that's what that is. That's all you had to tell me. And then I can take it from there. That's the one thing that I love. And we talked a little bit about this pre-chat as far as I often feel that now that I've been doing this coursework and when we do our research and we have to find papers, I'm lucky that because of my university, I have access to yeah. papers and databases and so on. But yeah. if I am just a teacher, I am a K-12 teacher, and I want to say like, hey, what can I do different? What are the experts out there? What are the professors out there? What are these journals saying? And then I was like, I don't, I have to pay $50 to access this PDF, you right. know, just to give me this. So my next question to you is, you know, again, uh, and we talked about this, but for you, what have been some of the biggest challenges in making education research accessible to people of all yeah. backgrounds? Yeah. Okay. So you touched on a key thing. Like one of the first things that I do is um, any any research studies that I share, I actually make sure publicly accessible. Um, so which actually means that I have to like fork through stuff, you know, and I have to go like, is this something that can actually that people can access, right? Um, the other part that I would say is also identifying people because behind every paper, behind every, there's a, a person who was passionate enough to do the research and to write it up and put it into a paper because they care. Um, yes, video research is much more accessible and equitable. And actually that's gonna be part of, I've been arguing that uh, I'm going to try and subvert some of that through my dissertation process. I'm going to make part of my literature review video-based. Um, and that's something I'll be talking about more on the, I, uh, we would spend the rest of our time just talking about that. Um, but I will be sharing more of that on, as we go forward on, on TikTok, because honestly, once my coursework ends, I'm going to be recording and being holding myself accountable to my dissertation work in part by continually updating the process and talking about it with people on TikTok and hopefully being able to answer questions and have that enrich what I'm doing. Um, but one of the things that I do, like I said, I, there's so much that actually is publicly accessible, believe it or not, there very much is. The other part is, um, if you find something that, you, that seems, if the abs abstracts give you a lot of information, they really do. So learning to read an abstract is really helpful because you can get to an abstract of anything with a Google Scholar search. Um, and actually, I understand, and this is something that maybe you know more about fonts than I do, uh, is, is how ChatGPT is acting as a, as a new search engine. Um, that may even give you more to work with now. I'm about to stick my toes into that and I'm wanting to learn about that. Um, I think it's going to make a huge difference in my my literature review process because as a neurodivergent individual who I am actually a good writer, but it is an incredibly laborious process. Um, I'm a much better editor than I am a writer in a lot of ways, in part because 
I, you know, just building something to begin with is very hard when I build anything from the ground up. But if I can take something and work with it, if I've got a lot, if I've got a lot seed, um, and anybody who doesn't know that term, oh, I love that term. Uh, it comes from Commedia dell'arte. The idea was that in Commedia dell'arte, they would have shows where they would have a known story that the actors all knew that they were going to do, but it didn't have all the lines. It only had the specific ones that had to be included in the scene, but the rest of the scene was improvised. Every time, every show. And so the Lazzi was what is a script that asks you and demands the actors to improvise whole, for, whole cloth, lots of, lots of things. So when I say that word, that's how I want every lesson plan to be, or at least to treat every lesson plan as a Lazzi. Um, but coming back to this, one of the big things I would say, and that, that is a key part of like me coming into TikTok, Ed researchers don't see themselves as being in this ivory tower. In fact, many of them feel kind of lonely and desperately wish somebody cared as much about the things that they're talking about as they do. They are so welcoming. Here's what you do. You find an abstract for a paper you like. Um, you know, like you just do. And again, a basic Google Scholar search will find you all kinds of stuff. You don't have to be an expert. You just, the only sort of expertise that you learn. It's just over time you learn how to make better Boolean searches. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Um, but find the thing. If it's behind a paywall, contact the author. Reach out to them. They're almost all publicly listed. They're almost all publicly listed. Now, here's another cool trick that I, I think is a trick that people don't know about Google Scholar. Once you find a paper, you can also find papers that cite that paper. And this is why it's actually really important and cool that uh, in education, in research, that we always cite our sources is because it creates this, this trail by which we can stand on, the, uh, by which you can see the shoulders of the giants that people are, but also you can see where people are moving forward. So if you find one piece of one article, especially if it's old, let's say it's from the 90s, and you're like, man, what about this? And I, why the hell have I never heard of this before? Right. And, and you're like, okay, but where is this now? Well, you look at cited and you see who cited it and you see who cited it and you can filter by year. You can see who cited it within the last three years. And then that will give you, and then you can go to that person, even if the original author is dead or not accessible or we've lost, you know, they've gone out of academia, they're no longer publicly listed, whatever. You can go find that person. And the thing is, is like these people engaged in research will almost always uh, get back to you in some fashion and they will, they'll give you a copy. They have a, most of them have a copy of their own. They might even give you like an early draft. Oh, <laughs> and they'll warn you. They're like, this is a, this is an earlier draft, but I think it covers most of the things. Um, and so like, and the other big thing is, Librarians, do you know that librarians are magic? They are pure effing magic. You go to your local librarian, even your school librarian, even, or if you go to your your public library and talk to the librarian, it might take time, but they'll they will find a way. They will beg, borrow, and steal it um, on your behalf if you say, "I would like this article." Um, I hate that it's that much work. You know, and I'd like things to be more accessible from the begin with. Um, 
I do know that there are some sites, unfortunately, I don't use them enough to remember the names of them that uh, have democratized knowledge in certain ways. Uh, you might look up TikToks that are like, don't do this. Don't go to .ed, you know, .com or .net and put in these words to find this article that's behind a, a paywall. Um, so those things exist. And the thing is, is the author never gets paid for, they've already been, they, in fact, and this is something we talked about before the show, many article writers have been charged money by those journals to submit their article. So they're not only are they not getting paid for writing the article, but sometimes they are paying for getting that article published by that thing that's behind a paywall, which is complete nonsense. I will say that happens less in ed research and more in my uh, hard science. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I absolutely agree. And, and it wasn't it's something that I knew about up until I started my master's program. And then I was like, okay, we have to do research. And then now in doctoral studies, okay, research. And then I was like, wow, like I, I have to go and pay for this. And, you know, I was like, no. And then absolutely, like you said, you learn those things where it's like, okay, let me see the abstract. Let me see the work cited. And then just lead me from there. As a matter of fact, for this semester, for this course, what I need to do is for my dissertation, I need to search for an instrument and, uh, you know, for my dissertation. And so that's my whole semester is just searching for an instrument because my prof is like, look, if you don't have to reinvent the wheel, don't reinvent the wheel. But yeah. get in contact. And he goes, find something that is out there that may be feasible with your research and reach out to the author and ask like, hey, you know, would it be possible to use this instrument that you already have and maybe make some slight tweaks for my study? And he said, and he said the exact same thing. He goes, you'd be surprised how helpful they yes. will be. You know, because you're looking for that and, and they want to share. So I'm like really excited about that. <laughs> I've never met a researcher that wanted things to be behind a paywall, right? I've never met anyone who didn't want people to read their work. And in fact, a really sad statistic that I've heard is that the majority of articles are, that are published, like literally the average is three people read them. And like, and one of those is the editor of the journal right so like that means that maybe one or two people not directly involved with that article have that actually read the article um and so that's that's the thing oh the other thing i will say almost all dissertations are freely accessible now almost all of them um so you can if you know, if you can find the name of somebody who, especially if they're doing work now and it's recent or whatever, um, they will likely have cited themselves uh, to some degree. They'll have cited their dissertation because they're going to be saying, well, such and such is a thing. Well, that was a finding of their dissertation. You know, so they'll have cited that. Um, find people's dissertations. You don't have to read the whole darn thing. They're huge. But... You can look at the abstract. You can look at the specific findings. You can look at the methodology section. You can look at specific parts of that dissertation to pull out the things that you want. And like you said, like actually, I contacted um, uh, someone that I know, a, a chair of a program at, at Northwestern, who I, you know, met with and sat down with, who actually was the one who put me on to doing a PhD 
Um, and just to kind of reconnect and also see what kind of connections he can make. Cause I was looking at different aspects of what I could do with my dissertation and who I might want to work with and stuff outside of DePaul. And, and he said, and I was describing my, he's like, my dissertation was actually really similar to yours. You should go look at it. And like, so I, you know, I'm going to crib from his dissertation in terms of instrument structure, et cetera, around building, you know, because process-wise and structurally, there's somebody, even if our particular viewpoints are different, which they have to be, because that's part, the thing that kills me about lit review is trying to prove something that's not, yeah. right? I don't know if anybody knows this. The whole idea of a dissertation is that you're putting out something new in the world. As such, a huge part of your dissertation is writing about how what you're doing is new, which then means you have to say, well, I've been through all the literature and have no, and these are the only studies that I found, or these are the studies that are remotely similar. And let me tell you about how what I'm doing is different. And the problem is, is it is both a, in my case, it is both a benefit and a complete and soul crushing hindrance that what I'm doing, nobody's really been doing. Nobody has been teaching improv to teachers in pre-service education. Nobody's been doing it. And so I have yet to find any of that. Now there's people who've talked about improv, there's stuff, that, there's plenty of stuff about, kit, about teaching improv to kids, which is great. But I'm like, how much of that is the blind leading the blind? You know, when it's like, hey teacher, you know, it's like, it's when they tell teachers, you know, after the fact that you know how to do a lesson plan, you know how to go to the curriculum pacing guide. Now differentiate. Absolutely. And, and the thing was, it's like, I took a class in differentiation and the book that we read, half of it was spent telling me why differentiation is something you should do. And I'm sitting there going, my first day of teaching ever, I immediately went, well, how can I make sure everybody's here? How, how can I make this accessible? Like, and, and being willing and able to go, oh, this part of the lesson plan doesn't work for this person because clearly that's not a thing. Like, and yet, you know, and then when you say the word differentiation to teachers, their eyes go on rotisserie. Anyway, I know we're getting away from what we were saying. Oh, thank no, you, Amanda. I love that Amanda's been commenting. I love it when, when you know, I'm doing these things and people have something to interject. Uh, yes. yes. No, Amanda is great. Make sure she's on TikTok as well. I'm pretty sure she's already awesome. following you and she'll probably post something and everything. But Amanda is phenomenal and she's just a, a great person and just a great supporter of the show. She's here Saturdays and whenever it is that she can. So big shout out to Amanda for joining us today. But Eric, as we wind down, I mean, I really appreciate everything that you share today, your passion. Uh, you know, obviously, of course, what you're doing with Let's Talk Ed Research on TikTok and opening up that discourse to share research and just really help, you know, put this information out there and getting different viewpoints and showing research and, you know, obviously, you know, in this way, moving and, you know, whatever we can to move the education needle forward and everything. So I definitely, definitely love that. So thank you so much. And I want to add one little thing on sure. that specific thing. If there's one thing that anybody can take away from any of this about TikTok is my biggest finding as a researcher on TikTok, who's literally presenting at conferences. I'll be presenting in Amsterdam of all places about my work on TikTok um, come this spring in April. The key finding that I have found is there is legitimate capital D academic word discourse 
happening in this space on TikTok. And if anyone tries to tell you that social media is the worst and useless and terrible, it is always going to be a double-edged sword. It is always going to have problems. It should not be your primary source of information. You know, it is not a primary source. It is the public, dis but it is discourse. There are people who know what they're talking about, who are sharing very meaningful, very real information. And we need to honor that. And we cannot dismiss it as a inconsequential space. So if anybody is watching this and is not already on TikTok, um, go lurk, follow me, follow people, uh, follow anyone that I've ever reposted, um, follow anyone who's ever responded to me. Um, TikTok is a space of real discourse that is entirely valid. If it's a format that doesn't fit for you, that's fine. My only thing is I just, I'm very tired of the, the sort of Luddite, well, this is social media technology thing and it's for the kids um, and it's not good. And, you know, and only one of the best things about TikTok is it will help you find your people. One of the worst things about TikTok is it will help you find your people if their people are bad people, right? If you go looking for diverse viewpoints, TikTok will give it to you. If you go looking for an echo chamber of hate, TikTok will unfortunately give that to you as well. So it has to do with your intent. Sorry, yes. that's, I just, no. I, I realized I hadn't jumped on that. And that's like key research funding. Oh, no, it's absolutely great. And Amanda posted, he goes, yeah, dude, you should make that a billboard, which kind of leads us into our last part of the show. As we wind down, I always love to end the show with three questions that I love to ask all my guests. Yes. So, Eric, let's see if you are ready for question number one. The question is, in the current state of education, what would you say is your current edu-kryptonite? Um, testing. Standardized testing. Um, and, and everything that comes from the monopoly of curriculum, of uh, certification, and quote-unquote accountability that is all coming through mostly one company, Pearson. Um, it is really, really bad things. Um, the other part of edukryptonite is anytime we other children and say, well, and we lower our expectations for what any kid deserves and is capable of, and when we treat accommodations as privileges. We have to stop doing that. And, sorry, so on that note, gifted education is an accommodation, not a privilege. Accelerated learning is a need. It is not okay to make somebody sit around and wait before they can move on and learn more because of their age. Stop it. Do not badmouth gifted ed. Now, on that same note, Constantly call out the ways in which gifted education programs are, have been used to reinforce white supremacy and tell people to stop that nonsense and to make gifted programming inclusive and responsive to students' needs. Love it. Great. Thank you so much for that awesome answer. There's Land. so much there. No, it, it, but it's wonderful. 
helpful. It hits on so many great points, great sound bites. We continue to promote the show, you know, but thank you so much for sharing that. And then, yeah, Amanda, exactly. Please clip this. It will be clipped for sure. I tell you that much. All right, Eric, question number two. Yep. And uh, Amanda kind of alluded to it, but of course you can change it up. But if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Teach the student in front of you, not the student you planned for. Every time. Love Teach it. to the student in front of you, not the student that you planned for. I, I think it. that's the first thing. That's, I, there's so many billboards I could make, but that's, that's the one. Oof, that one that's is the great. dissertation. That's a dissertation billboard. That's a, that's just a mic drop right there too. I mean, I love it. It absolutely speaks volumes and it speaks loudly and it's a great, great billboard. That's for sure. All right. And the last question, Eric. So let's say that this was the Let's Talk Ed Research podcast and you are the host and I am your guest. What would be one question you'd like to ask me? Ooh, so I actually have a series of these for my, my, uh, my, my uh, column that I write. Um, and I'm trying to pick, uh, what is, I, this is my thing. I like, it's two questions actually. What is your absolute favorite thing about what you do, the work that you are currently doing? And what is the thing that you hate most? And I think the trip tonight is partly is kind of the same yeah. question, but I would turn that back and say, those are the two questions that I think I, uh, that I always ask when I'm in a dialogue is like. What do you love? What, what, what gets you up in the morning? What's the passionate part of what you're doing? And then what is the thing that, what, what do you hate most about your chosen area of work and profession? Yeah, I think for me, it's just the, the learning process. Like the, for me, since tech moves so fast, it's always waking up and seeing, okay, what is out there and doing my research, going through social media and seeing what is happening, finding trends, because eventually my job is to, I don't want us to fall behind to what is out there. As a matter of fact, I want us to move forward and just to continue to actually be leading the way. But at the same time, being very cautious because one thing that I like is that, well, there's so much tech and we have been overloaded with tech where yep. there's several platforms that duplicate efforts. And sometimes what happens is there's just one little button extra and then it's like, boom, teachers just hop on that because they have that extra button. But it really does nothing for the pedagogy and the practice, really. And so my thing is, I always have to teach them. And, and this is a new mindset that, that uh, was shared with me, too, is really treat any platform as an instrument and a musical yeah. instrument. It takes time to practice and really dive in deep. At mm -hmm. first, it's going to be hard. And then once you start building those melodies, you become very proficient in it. And then you can really see what that platform can do rather than yeah. just say, eh, I can't get that C chord. Let me hop onto saxophone. Maybe that's easier. And now, nah, you know what? Let me hop onto this. And you're just hopping on and not really, you know, is there really learning taking place? Um, and then, of course, you as a teacher are learning another platform. Students are learning another platform and a different login. And it just mm -hmm. creates a whole mess. So that's one of the things, too, that that in my job, I have to. Sometimes I feel like I'm the bad guy, but in, and because teachers are like, oh, you won't let us do this or do this or do this. But as a district, what we've done is we've standardized on what platforms to use because we really want the teachers to maximize on those. And now, of course, we're not saying don't use X, Y, or Z. You have that option, but these are the ones that we want to focus on to dive in deep. And then at the end of the year, what I love too now is 
we get feedback from teachers and say, okay, what worked for you? What didn't work for you? And what are some suggestions you have so we can research and say, you know what? Maybe they are right. Let's let's go Mm -hmm. ahead and check this one out and take that feedback. So that's one of the things that this year has changed a lot where now there's more of that open communication from our central office to teachers. And it just makes things so much easier this year. The tech rolled out and we didn't get as as much fight back as we normally would because we did those surveys. We did the research. Yeah. We had a small group of people vet the resources and they're like, hey, these are pretty good. Now, later on, they may say, you know what? It looked good at first. We loved what it offered, but this and this are missing. And then we can go back and make some informed decisions and say, okay, yes. let's see what's out there. And that is like, oh my gosh, like it just really excites me because teachers are on board, we're, we're connecting and we have that conversation going back and forth. And ultimately the goal is we want successful students. And yeah. for me, it's like a successful student. And, and this, I'm just speaking from my experience. A successful student has never been a behavioral issue, a behavior issue for me. If a student is successful, they've always just come in and they're willing to work and share. So I want my students to be successful. So I want those teachers to have successful students that are happy to come in and just really work together with the teachers. So I love that. So that's, those are my things that I love about what I do. (laughs) Yeah. And I love that. I love that. The idea that that reciprocity, the, the sense of taking in information, what that creates is that sense of acting in good faith. You know, people assume that to listen to the student means that we're denying our own expertise, and it's not true. It allows us to create a relationship, a bond with that student in which they are going to trust and engage in good faith. And when people engage in good faith, everything's amazing. And, and I love how you point out that the way, the way we see a student succeeding is a student who's engaged in good faith. It's not about did they hit X, Y, Z. It's are they acting and working in a positive direction? Are they, are they internalizing that sense of ownership and capacity to learn? That's more important than any piece of information we could ever give them. And when, when students literally have 90% of human knowledge in their pocket, it's not about what we teach them. It's about how we teach them to learn. Absolutely. I love it. Thank you so much for that question. And I want to add Amanda's comment here again. It says, Eric, you're my kind of people. Thank you so much for your creative energy and spirited voice. Hashtag PLF, which stands for professional learning family or personal learning family, too. And then, of course, play matters. So thank you so much, Amanda, for your comments. I appreciate it. And again, Eric. You are definitely welcome back anytime you want to do another show. Oh, there's you so much more up. we can talk about. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so much up. more. We can make it happen maybe after your trip to Amsterdam. Maybe come back yeah. on and share your experience with us and how uh, your research was received and maybe some other yeah. ideas as to what to look out for. But this conversation could definitely continue definitely. to a part two, part three. Thank you so much. And we will definitely make that happen. I really appreciate you. And for all our audience members, that caught us live or are going to catch the replay. Thank you, as always, from the bottom of my heart for making My EdTech Life what it is today. Please make sure you stop by our website at myedtech.life where you can check out this amazing episode and all the other 167 amazing episodes with educators and creators 
that are passionate about what they do, where, like I mentioned earlier, where you can take a little bit of what they know and sprinkle it on to what you are already doing great. And if you'd love to contribute to our mission of our show, which is to connect educators and creators one show at a time, please make sure you stop by our merch store as well, where we've got sweaters, hoodies, we've got some nice caps here. We know conference season is around the corner and you want to dress comfortably. Hey, pick yourself up a sweater and again, contribute to our mission. But as always, my friends, until next time, don't forget, stay techie.